thought I'd kick off episode 133 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Someday You'll Be My Girl. It's from the band Low Split Guitars. It comes from their most recent and final album, Keep Surfing. Find out more about them over at lowsweatguitars.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I'm excited because we're doing another silent film on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Last week, we kicked off... I don't know if it's a trend. I don't know if it's something that I really did on purpose. Well, okay, I kind of did kind of do it on purpose. I was going to do nothing but silent films in September. Now, that didn't quite work out the way that I wanted it to. However... We do have another silent film this time around. If you've looked at the website, if you've looked at the cover art on your iPod or MP3 player, you know we're talking about the 1925 classic, one of the definitive films of Monster Kid Dumb, The Phantom of the Opera, starring the legendary Lon Chaney. I am excited to get a little Phantom of the Opera talk going on here on Monster Kid Radio. Not because I recently saw the film, but because Scott and Tracy Morris from Disney, Indiana. Scott's also one of my co-hosts over at 1951 Down Place. These two got a chance to see The Phantom of the Opera at the historic Art Craft Theater in Franklin, Indiana. To see this classic film in a theater setting, a restored theater setting. I mean, how amazing is that? This was the first time that either one of them had seen this film I'm excited to share their experiences. I know they're excited to share their experiences with the Monster Kid Radio listeners. We're going to get to that in a second. First, I want to remind everybody, monsterkidradio.net is not just where you're going to find links to the Low Sweat Guitars. You're going to find listings for everything that we do here at Monster Kid Radio. Follow the link in the show notes to anything that we talk about here in the show. The Historic Artcraft Theater is there. You're also going to find links to a couple of petitions. I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. There's also a link to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, and our Facebook group. Join the Facebook group, get involved with conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes, and take part in some of the polls and the questions, and we'll start up your own conversations. That's cool, too. We also have a Facebook page. We ask that you like it if you are a Facebook user. Our contact information is also on our website. I'm going to go ahead and mention it at the top of the show. Again, you can find it at monsterkidradio.net. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. There's also a link to our Patreon page and our Live 365 internet radio station. So I encourage you to check that out as well. I'm excited to get to the Phantom of the Opera talk with Scott and Tracy. So enough jibber-jabber with me. Let's get on with them right after this. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer, that 1972 black exploitation film starring Fred Williams, love that movie. 
This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Better not be the 2003 flick starring Adam Goldberg, you know, the Hebrew Hammer. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Yes, Lon Chaney was all of these. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Miracle Man, the Phantom of the Opera. The world, fascinated and thrilled, called him the Man of a Thousand Faces. But what was the secret Lon Chaney hid behind his thousand faces? What was the mystery in his life? Now, for the first time, the true story, torn from his heart, comes to the screen. Starring James Cagney, magnificent as the fabulous Lon Chaney, master of the grotesque, the weird, the strange, and Academy Award-winning Dorothy Malone and lovely Jane Greer as the two women who made his life more astounding, more touching than any of his unforgettable roles. I'll come to see you every week. Every week. I promise you. You had me fired. Damn you. Who are you? I'm from the collection agency. I've come to collect my wife. Gotta welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Two of my favorite Disney podcasters. They've been on the show before, together and by themselves. Scott and Tracy Morris, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, guys. Thanks for having us back, Derek. Thanks for having us back. And this studio looks a lot like the 1951 Downplay Studio. Uh huh. It'll be behind the scenes. Derek and I just recorded a Downplace episode. Yes, we did. So that'll be coming out later this month. We talked about the movie Man About the House from 1974. Is that right? Yes. I closed down that IMDb window, so I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to go for this Monster Kid Radio episode. We're going to go back a little bit farther into the past. Yes, 1925 for The Phantom of the Opera, a classic. Lon Chaney. We're just going to call him Lon Chaney. He wasn't called Lon Chaney Sr. in the credits. I don't think he ever professionally called himself that. Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces as the Phantom. And this is one of the big ones, folks. This is one that is, I'm going to call it required viewing. If you're into, I don't know, this is going to come up later, monster movies of the past. So highly recommend this film. And this was a film that you two got to see at the Historic Art Craft Theater. Yes, in Franklin, Indiana. It's actually a fundraiser for the installation of a pipe organ at their theater. So they are going to be showing this every year for the next couple of years until they have enough money to install the pipe organ, yeah, which the seems appropriate. The theater itself was built in the 20s, I, I believe, and they had original plans to put in a pipe organ. And there's a space for it and everything, but the original builders ran out of money. The theater was originally built as a vaudeville theater, but it also has shown movies. And over the years, it became just the Franklin, Indiana's movie house. It's now run by the Historic Society 
and they show movies that are at least 10 years old pretty much uh, almost every weekend. And they do also bring in theatrical events as well. So they're trying to actually finish the original building by putting in a pipe organ. They've got leads on a couple from other theaters that have been torn down. They never did really say how much they need for a pipe organ. Uh, $70,000. Oh, I must have missed that. So, But it was a full house. I think there was 300 and... No, 600 and something. 600 and something people there to see the film. Wow. Well, it's fitting that they're trying to bring in a pipe organ and, and using the Phantom of the Opera as the film to really raise funds because you know, Phantom of the Opera has such a, a root, such a basis in music, that sort of thing. So that's fantastic. You know, I'm lucky that I live in an area right now that has all these little theaters bringing in all these old movies and things like that. I've got the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, but I am always jealous when you guys talk about going to the art craft. It just looks and sounds amazing. Built in 1922, designed for vaudeville and silent films. One of the first theaters in your area, in that area, to get cool air when they brought in a swamp cooler. So that was one of the things the theaters was doing to try to compete with television. You know, we have free air conditioning. That sort of thing would be on the marquees of a lot of movie theaters. And it looks like the aircraft was one of the first ones in the area to do that. It is a nonprofit now, but man, I would love to go see it. Well, Tracy and I try to go down there as often as we can. It's about an hour and 10, hour and 15 minutes south of where we live. So we have to kind of plan ahead to go. But we've seen films like Jaws, uh, Back to the Future. Well, the Universal Monster Movie Festival from last year that we talked about here on the show. Was there. And also we've been to an Alfred Hitchcock Film Festival there, which was six Alfred Hitchcock films over a weekend. We both are big fans of the art craft. I know that if we lived closer, I would volunteer to work there because it's all the people that work there are volunteers. I I would do it in a heartbeat if I lived any closer. Well, people can find out more about it at the uh, website, historicartcrafttheater.org. And that's theater with an R-E at the end, not E-R. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes because I think it's something that if people are in the area, they should definitely support. There is another Hitchcock Festival coming up next month. They're going to be showing things like The Shining in October, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. So if you're of a Disney mindset. <laughs> Which we're planning on going to. So There you go. There you go. So, yeah, that just sounds awesome. That theater looks and sounds amazing. Every time you guys talk about it or mention to me in correspondence that you're going to go see something at the aircraft, it's like, oh, man, that's awesome. <laughs> well, I wish it could have worked out that we could have taken you down there while you were here. Ah, there's always a next time. Yep. There's always a next time. Now, this time you saw The Phantom of the Opera. Had either one of you seen this movie before? I had not. Uh, my experience with the story of the Phantom of the Opera is primarily from the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Even though I've never seen the musical itself or the movie based on the musical, I did in the late 80s, early 90s own a copy of the soundtrack. I think everybody had a copy of the soundtrack. <laughs> now, wasn't there a version with Freddy Krueger? Not Freddy, but... Yes. And, and didn't you see that, Tracy? No, I did when I was probably too young to be watching it oh, see right. a version see the Phantom of the Paradise, which I believe came out in seventy eight, maybe, nineteen seventy eight. Second feature of a drive in I was supposed to be asleep and I wasn't and had subsequent nightmares. My history of the Phantom of the Opera really is I've seen the iconic scene of the mask being taken off several times in different compilations of famous horror scenes but other than that being subjected to listening to the Andrew Lloyd Webber when Tracy would play it 
not a big fan of it. I've never seen anything, not watched the movie, so this was all a new experience for me. And no other version of Phantom at all other than Phantom of the Paradise? That's for Tracy. Yeah, I hadn't, And I, for you, you hadn't even seen that? I had not even seen that. I was aware of it. That's about it. Wow. I really had no idea what I was about to see when we watched it. Did you know at least the basic story? Well, I knew that there was the Phantom of the Opera who hung out in a opera house and fell in love with a singer. And at one point, she takes his mask off because I had seen that. But really, that was about it. So this was a new experience for you. And Tracy had a little bit more knowledge of Phantom. I have to ask overall, thoughts on the film? I really enjoyed the film itself. My experience with silent movies is somewhat limited. I've only seen maybe half a dozen or so. But if you can put yourself in the right mindset to watch it, it's an amazing film. I was a little disappointed by the audience reaction to the film. Which we'll get to. Yeah, you both had mentioned that to me in private emails that wasn't the best quality experience, which we can talk about if you want to. But as far as the film itself goes, you dug it? Oh, for me, I was blown away. I had to keep reminding myself that I was watching a movie from 1925. The sets were amazing. That opera house set was incredible. The makeup was, you know, I'm just blown away. When the fandom comes down, it's the Red Death. I thought that was incredible costume and makeup. I just couldn't believe that I was watching a movie from 1925. Now, our experience was enhanced by a custom score being performed by a live 14-piece orchestra. It was written by a Franklin College graduate named Phil Beeman. And there's uh, a nice little article in the pamphlet, the program they handed out, where he talks about his inspiration. So that, I think, really added to the experience. Since we got back, I watched a little bit of Phantom of the Opera off of archive.org, and their copy had just a very generic silent movie soundtrack, and it made a difference. You know, the score really added to the dramatic moments. In particular, he wrote two separate love themes, one for Christine and Raul and one for Christine and Eric. They were pretty impactful. As Tracy said, there was an orchestra that was playing the music live. Now, we couldn't see the orchestra because they were down in the orchestra pit, but we could see the. they had a full timpani percussion set up. Up on stage, they had a harp and a harpist, and they also had a organ that they brought in to, for the music, the organ music. They also had a, what they called a professional screamer. She was uh, sitting just off stage. <laughs> Whenever nice. whenever a character on screen would scream, she would scream. And they even had a singer that was sitting down with the orchestra. So when the scenes of the opera were going on, she was singing, and she was singing in French, which was impressive. Right. She, she wow. was singing the selections from Gounod's Faust, uh-huh. which the score writer did incorporate into his overall score. That's very cool. It was a lot different than any other movie experience I'd ever been to, especially at the art craft, because the guy that's the head of the theater... Rob Schultz. uh, Whenever you go to see a movie at the art craft, they show them Friday and Saturday nights and the night episodes, because they also show a matinee in the afternoon. But only at the night ones, he'll come on. uh, The art craft players will do short attention span theater where they'll make 
you know, they'll recreate a scene and just kind of have fun with it. They also have prize drawings and they have a who was the long the the person that traveled the farthest to see it. They didn't do anything for that with this. This was just this was presented as something very special and he was dressed up. He had a tuxedo on, which kind of threw me for a loop when I first saw it cuz I've never seen him <laughs> dressed up like that. Wow. So they were they were pulling out all the stops and really doing it up well. Very cool. It sounds like they really wanted to present this as a prestige film, which yes. I honestly believe that it is. It does turn up on all the important movie lists, not just horror movies or monster movie lists, but it does appear in the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die book. You know, it is an important film for so many different reasons, and it is an excellent example of – I would even go as far as saying the excess that Universal reveled in when it came to a lot of their productions. Oh, I would definitely agree. You know, like like Scott said, the set of the Opera House, not oh, only gorgeous, the, not only the stage itself, but all the behind the scenes, the backstage, the multiple levels of the cellars. I found myself wondering, was this a real building that they filmed in, or was this all sets? I know that Soundstage Twenty Eight which was the opera house was a real stage. And it, it, as of recently has been coming under a lot of, I guess, fire and universals considering demolishing the set. I don't know if they're mm. going to keep the stage or not, which is unfortunate because it's been standing for years. It was used in later films as well. It's just a gorgeous setting. I love the, I, I don't know if the job title was production designer at the time, but the production design of the film is just amazing. And that's one of the things I love about watching some of these silent films is they haven't quite figured out that you don't have to have a fully functional house to shoot a film in a house. They just get a house and do it. And you see these big, large, amazing sets and vistas that only exist in some of these films. And it's just amazing to look at. What really got me was not only the stage, obviously in the mid-20s had to have been very expensive to put together, but it was the... Not only the caverns underneath, but the traps that the Phantom had set were very elaborate. And that surprised me for a film of this time frame, you know, with the water and the fire and everything. I, I didn't expect that, which was something else that I thought well, they spent a lot of time putting this together and thinking this through of how it would actually work. Exactly. The, you know, the flooded area. You know, where the fandom has to either sail the boat across or the the snorkeling, which was another, to me, pretty amazing scene that they were able to develop that and develop the makeup that would stay on after being underwater. That's true. Good point. Yeah, I want to get back to that stage set, the sound stage set, the phantom stage, because it's so gorgeous. And if people want to see it in real color. It was used again in the 1943 version of the film, also produced by Universal. Mm -hmm. So it appears in there. It also appears in the original Dracula at some point. I'm not entirely sure where, but even Hitchcock used it, Torn Curtain. Yep. So it is something that got a lot of use afterwards, and it wouldn't have lasted if it wasn't built to last. You know what I mean? It was built well. It wasn't just a set. This was a fully functional you know, stage for crying. I mean, it's just amazing to think about and look at. You mentioned the traps and even the underwater with the snorkeling. There's a level of technical expertise in this film that I feel like a lot of movies after this that by all rights should have figured out how to do some of this stuff better just don't. 
Well, I wonder if part of that is due to the economics. I mean, Phantom of the Opera, 1925, yeah. we've got this buildup just prior to the Great Depression, where people were spent right, where people were spending amazing amounts of money on all sorts of things. So, of course, Universal is going to have that money to splurge on its sets. Well, and rightly so. This movie was a box office hit. It made a ton of money. I mean, even after the initial release, it got re-released a few times, sometimes with even sound. In 1930, a version of it was released, and it grossed another million dollars at the box office. This is $1930 million. How much money is that today? I mean, that's amazing to think about. Well, another thing while I was watching the film that really struck me that I wasn't expecting at all was Technicolor in, in just a few scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the party that they're having uh, one night at the opera, and that's the scene where I mentioned earlier where the, the Phantom comes out as the Red Death. But that was very detailed and rich color. I was, I was expecting this to be a black and white movie all the way through. Another point in my mind where I'm like, Remember, this is a 1925 movie. This was very impressive. I wasn't expecting that at all. That scene is a particular favorite of mine for a number of different reasons. One, because it is just so, like, really? It's so well done for the time. But it's also an opportunity to see something from a previous era in real color. Not necessarily gone back and colorized later, that sort of thing. We actually get to see the costumes and the mm-hmm. gowns and the architecture and everything in that entire sequence in actual color. And it's a neat little bit of cinematic archaeology. It's the same reason why I kind of like the movie Scared to Death from 1947. It's the only or one of the only films that was in actual color featuring Bella Lugosi. So you could see Bella in living color, you know. It's just kind of neat to see that. The colors that the filmmakers intended, not some digital artist exactly. 50 years later. The version that I have of the film, I have a couple of different versions of the movie at home. One of them is the more recent release put out by Kino, and it's a really nice Blu-ray. However, this version of the film is a 1929 version of the film, which had a different opening bit, had some sound that was originally designed for the film with a sound disc that was sent out to theaters as well. And some of the title cards are different. They actually were able to change some of the title cards and change the story a little bit. Now, why they did that, I don't understand, and I don't know. But I do find it interesting that with this silent film, they were able to kind of tweak the story a little bit, change some of the character relationships by just changing the title cards up. Do you know what version of the film you guys saw? I believe we saw a the a 1930 cut because I, I seem to remember uh, Rob Schultz saying that this was not the original, original version. But I'm kind of looking through our, our pamphlet and it doesn't say either way. Specifically, because they focus more on the score and the work that went into that in the pamphlet. Did it open with kind of like the shadow outline of the Phantom doing something? Yes, there was the scene where I'm assuming it was the scene that was referenced later on by one of the stagehands that saw the Phantom. It looked almost like a a reddish light, and you see the Phantom in, in silhouette. But you don't get a good look at him at that point. Yeah, it's the set in the tunnel, one of the tunnels where you see the the stagehand with the lantern. And he's looking around. And that was, again, another really fun part of the score. There was no music at all, just a slow timpani beat to represent a heartbeat. And that was really effective. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. That sounds like it would have been awesome. You know, I think 
the film would have been enhanced by a really good score. Like you said, you watched it at home with a different version. It had kind of a kind of a generic score. The version that's on Amazon Prime that you can stream for free is like that. Uh, the Kino edition's got a really good score on it, I feel mm. like. So I would recommend that to people if they're interested in seeing the movie with sound, with music. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's not the real reason why you're watching this movie. There are so many great visuals. We talked about the sets. Both of you knew what the Phantom would look like without the mask, right? Oh, you had seen that. You've that, seen that. It's an iconic yes. uh, picture. Although I had not seen the Phantom with yeah, the mask. That's true. We had not seen him with the mask on. And that was oh. almost as creepy. It is kind of a blank. It's almost like a mannequin face. Yeah, it looks that's a great way to put it. And what I found disturbing was like the cheesecloth or the fabric that he had, you know, basically below the nose to cover his mouth and chin. That was kind of spooky as well. I don't know who designed the mask itself, but yeah, it is a, a kind of a dead faced kind of mm-hmm. thing. And mannequin is a great way to put it, Scott. You nailed it. And with the way the cheesecloth just kind of flutters a little bit, at it, it's just creepy looking. And then, of course, the big reveal is just amazing. Well, I was expecting, you know, what little I knew about the Phantom was the Android Lloyd Webber with the half mask that that's hard plastic. So I was expecting something like that. As the mask. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was completely blown away when we first see him in that mask. Yeah, you're right. That half mask is, I think, kind of unique to the musical. I wonder where it came from or who designed that. (laughs) I never really paid attention, I guess. You know, Chaney designed his own makeup. He did a lot of his own stunts. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The makeup in this is just... I wonder if he did the mask, too. That's what I'm wondering. But yeah, the, the makeup of the Phantom... But the eyes and the nose and the, the cheek, but just all of it is just amazing. And then, when, as Tracy said earlier, you add on the fact that he was able to go underwater with it and come back up without it being eaten away or running off his face or anything. The technical prowess of Cheney. I mean, this movie really is a masterpiece on so many different levels. I'm glad you guys liked it so much. That's oh, great. Yeah, I, I had a blast. I, I was really getting into the story and everything. The the one problem that we had, and it had nothing to do with the film, it was just a function of the environment that we were seeing it in. As we mentioned earlier, there was 600 and some people there. A lot of the people, I think, in the theater either A, had never seen a silent film before, or B, knew what to expect in a silent film. Because you have the actors doing a lot more pantomime because they can't express anything through words, so they've got to express the motions and the feelings and everything through over-exaggeration of movement. And I knew that was going to happen because I had seen silent films before, so I was fully aware of that. Well, that brought in the theater a lot of inappropriate laughing because people thought things were funny, and that kind of distracted from the uh, viewing of the film. That, to me, was a big distraction. I almost wish, you know, Rob Schultz had maybe said something at the beginning, you know, please realize this being a silent film, some of the conventions that they use to provide character moments are a little bit different from what we see in modern films. Keep that in mind. Just something to kind of put people in the right mind frame. Because if I remember right, there was even some laughter at the reveal, the tearing off of the mask. Oh, man, that's unfortunate. Yeah, because the Phantom, he's trying to portray that he's upset that 
she's done this after mm-hmm. she after he just told her not to. And so there's this look of shock and surprise that he's trying to purvey. Well, it came off being just opening your eyes and your mouth as wide as you can. And people just started laughing at that, which was a shame. Oh, that's so unfortunate. I'm sorry, guys. Like I said, we were able to appreciate it for what it was. And there are some legitimately humorous moments at the beginning when the previous owners of the theater are finalized the selling of it. Oh, by the way, you might hear something about this Phantom of the Opera. I mean, that that was a legitimately funny moment. And when the new owners go into the box, box five, and they see the figure and then they leave and then they go back and he's not there and they come back out and their you know their expressions i mean those those are obviously supposed to be funny moments sure and those sure. we didn't have a problem with but there were some other items you know near the end when um raul and ledoux are going through the catacombs underneath and ledoux makes a warning about to hold hold your hand up near your face to avoid the garrots the garrots Again, the crowd just thought that was really funny to see these men walking around with their hands up near their faces, totally missing the point of why they're doing it. That's unfortunate. And, you know, I think you kind of nailed it earlier. There is a different mindset you go into these movies with. It is a silent film. And we did talk about The Cabin of Dr. Caligari last week on Monster Kid Radio. And there's a different approach that you take to these films because it is a different time. It's... You know, there is no sound. So there's a lot of pantomiming. There is a lot of body acting and over-exaggeration right. and that sort of thing. On top of that, this is a very young medium still. Right. Film as an art form hasn't really settled into what it's going to be. So you're bringing in a lot of people who did a lot of stage work mm-hmm. who have to act big so that the people in the back row can see you. Exactly. So there's this kind of... I don't want to call it overacting because that's not quite what it is, but it is a different style. Yeah, it's it's what we now we now perceive it as overacting because you know we're used to a much more mature industry where you know you can do zooms and close ups and and multiple camera work that either wasn't available then or hadn't yet been thought of. Exactly. Either way, though, I'm glad you enjoyed the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so much fun and. I'm up for going to see it again, and they bring it back next year. Oh, definitely. Oh, wow. When you saw it this year, was this the first year they had brought it in? Yes, this was the, the, time. First, the first time they had done this. So it was all, you know, this was the first time that they had played the score and everything. In fact, uh, when they were doing the, the intro and everything, Rob was saying that, you know, for this whole week they've been playing the film and they've had the orchestra there at nights practicing or the the organist has been in practicing, and he said it was just kind of sometimes a little creepy to start hearing like the organ or something when he was up in his office or something. <laughs> he says creepy. I say awesome. Oh, yes. I would think it'd been awesome too. But <laughs> was this the uh, first Lon Chaney film you guys had ever seen? I believe so. I've seen clips of uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm-hmm. but yeah, this is the first full film I've seen him in, and of course, he's just. Amazing. Yeah, I've seen more of his son's work than his. Mm-hmm. Who we also really enjoy. Oh, yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. is amazing. But, uh, yeah, Lon Chaney the first. The man was a master. 
He really had control over his body, over his face. A lot is said about his makeup, and he would do his own makeup and do his own stunts. But none of that matters if he doesn't bring his own charisma to the role, and he doesn't bring his own performance and presence to it as well. And I think he really understood, more so than a lot of performers of that era, how film worked and what was important to see and do for the camera. But what I really took from his performance in especially in in phantom is the phantom was a character that i actually felt sorry for Mm -hmm. which i wasn't expecting he was obviously someone that had been tortured early in his life both mentally and physically and emotionally because he was just a wreck for lack of a better term and he really felt I, i felt the love that he had for christine and he just let that emotion take over, which led to his downfall eventually. But you really felt all of those feelings from that character, which amazed me the fact that this is all he's not speaking. I don't hear his voice. I don't hear any of that. And yet I feel all of that about him. I was also impressed with Mary Philbin, who played Christine Day the love interest that we've mentioned earlier of both Raul and uh, Eric the Phantom. Again, had never seen her before in any silent films that I'm aware of, but she was able to portray this innocent character kind of caught in the middle. You know, she loved Raul, but she was also very intrigued by Eric and I think kind of caught up in the spell that he was weaving to you know, make her a star. And that she got so caught up in that, that she kind of forgot about what Raul could be for her. So again, all, all of those emotions and all of that going on with the title cards and mm-hmm. her own physical performance. And the music. Yes. And the music. <laughs> I'd seen Mary Philbin in a handful of other films. She's in The Man Who Laughs, which we talked about again last week on Monster Kid Radio with Greg Starrett when we were talking about Conrad Veidt. She's a, a good actress, and I felt like when she needed to, the few times that she needed to, she held her own against Lon Chaney. But Lon Chaney dominates everything in this film. Oh, definitely. It's not because, <laughs> you know, Mary Philbin wasn't like challenging Lon Chaney at all. It's Lon Chaney knew that he didn't have to be the spotlight of everything that he was in. So, again, it's an intelligence and a knowledge of what the audience needed to see to buy everything for me. I thought the performances were solid. I think the performers were great. Oh, I thought Lon Chaney, obviously, like you said, he he dominated the film. He was amazing. And it made sense that uh, Mary Feldman was a little weaker as compared to him because he is controlling her through a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. So that just pulls through that as well. Now, there's one thing that we talked about a little bit off mic and that uh, you brought up in Monster Kid Radio before. Is the Phantom a monster? You know... It's tough because you look at a movie like The Cabin of Dr. Caligari, you look at a silent film like Nosferatu, and it's clear that these are terror pictures, horror pictures, monster movies. With something like Phantom, he's a monstrous type character because he's doing some pretty terrible things. He doesn't have the best people skills, but you kind of nailed it earlier. He's really a victim. Mm -hmm. And... Sure, he probably could have made some other life choices at some point. 
But something horrible happened to this guy before the film started. They make reference to that he was kept in those caverns when it was during the revolution chamber or something. Right. And that something happened to him there and that's why he's there. But they never, you know, they don't go into it too much. You know, the reason I bring up the question is sometimes he's thrown in with the likes of Dracula and Frankenstein, the invisible man. And I see those characters. I mean, the closest one I could really get him with, it would be the invisible man. Dracula, Frankenstein, the creature, all of those have a supernatural type quality to them. It's not just a man. It didn't start off as just a man. Now, the Phantom and the Invisible Man, the Phantom was tortured and everything to turn him into this. The Invisible Man took drugs to make him invisible. So, I guess it really depends on what you feel a monster is. Is it supernatural or not? Now, see, I kind of think of the Phantom as being more comparable with Frankenstein's monster, as in something happened to turn him into the creature he is. Again, that, that there's that victim situation. I can kind of see the, the association with the Invisible Man, but in that case, it was more his pride and his hubris that brought him to his situation. Whereas with Frankenstein's monster and Eric, they were presumably blameless in what brought them to their current state. I think I'm more on Team Tracy on this one than Team Scott. Sorry, buddy. Uh, but I, I think I am more uh, on the same page here with Tracy that it's, you know, he's a victim. He didn't ask for this. That That's said, he still does yeah. some pretty nasty oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unlike Frankenstein's monster, which really does have the intellect of a child, really. I mean, that was something that Karloff really tried to bring to the role. The Phantom is an adult. He understands at least kind of sort of love He's making some pretty terrible decisions regarding how he's going to interact with the rest of the people in the opera house. He also shows a lot of intelligence for all the traps that Mm -hmm. he set. So I would also maybe add another universal monster archetype to the mix. You got a little bit of the Invisible Man. You got a little bit of the Frankenstein's monster. You also have a little bit of the mad scientist type uh, beyond the Invisible Man, but more like a Dr. Frankenstein type because he's doing all the building and the trap setting. Evil genius type stuff. And manipulation of everybody. Oh, yeah. Sorry, one character I would have liked to have known more about was Ledoux. You know, because he, the he shows policeman. the secret policeman. He shows up early in the film and you have no idea who he is. He's, you know, he stalks down the stairs when one of the stagehands and all the ballerinas are, are flitting around. And then later on, you do find out that he's, in the, you know, a secret police. He's been interested in pursuing this idea, this phantom for, it sounded like years. But yeah, I'd, I would be very curious to know if in the original novel there's more backstory on him or if any of the other interpretations of this story have more background on him. You know, that I don't know. I've never read the original novel, you know, to be upfront about the whole thing. I've never read that. So I don't know if he even turns up in the novel. I don't know where that or anything about that character. So, And I don't remember him in any of the other versions that I've seen filmically outside of the film adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm-hmm. Is he even in that? I uh, like I said, I've never seen the, the musical itself. I don't remember his character from this, from the soundtrack, but yeah, I, I can don't see that being something either. skipped over. 
And I've never seen Phantom of the Paradise, so I don't know if there's an analog there. <laughs> yeah, it's been 30-some years since I saw it. I'd like to see it again. I don't know. It's kind of out of Monster Kid Radio's wheelhouse, but... Uh, as is the Freddy Krueger, Robert England version yeah. <laughs> of the film, which I have seen. And it's um, it's an interesting one. It's about all I'll say about it. I like the score. Well, hearing all these other versions, I think if I wanted to watch the story again, I'm going to go back to the original. There you go. There you go. Yeah, you know, I would recommend the, the Universal 1943 version. in entertainment in one superb show. Here is matchless story, suspenseful, terrifying, never so thrillingly presented. Here in breathtaking technicolor is superb spectacle and splendor and romance. Here is a chorus of a hundred voices, a ballet of a hundred dancers, a cast of a thousand, starring Nelson Eddy in his most vigorous performance, lovely Susanna Foster, and Claude Rains in the most coveted role of the year as the Phantom of the Opera. My music! You've stolen it! You've stolen my music! some issues. It's cool to see it in color. The downside to the 1943 version is that it's not Lon Chaney uh, Jr. It's not his son playing the role, which could have happened. For whatever reason, it didn't. Chaney was a universal guy at the time, so it could have happened. In my mind, it should have happened. Uh, Claude Rains ends up playing the character. Ooh, that so. intrigues me. And then, of course, there's also the Hammer Films version of Phantom of the Opera as well, which I really do kind of dig a little bit. Herbert Lom plays the Phantom in that. Michael Goff is in that film. Come, if you dare, within these walls. On stage is color, beauty, and light. But in the shadows lurks a monstrous evil. Young woman, you must come with me. Terror haunts these dusty corridors. Murder waits its call in the dressing rooms. And on cue, death makes his entrance.
have no right to love and happiness, for this beautiful young girl is tangled in a web of terror. Phantom of the Opera, the hideous echo of a night of agony and horror, a night that must be avenged even from beyond the grave. Yeah, I think the Phantoms turned up in a Scooby-Doo episode. Dario Argento did a version of yeah, Phantom pr- of the you Opera. You probably I mean, saw the Scooby-Doo been... episode, Scott. <laughs> I was never a big fan of Scooby-Doo. Oh. So. But yeah, now I want, to see, I want to see the Hammer version, though. Are you not aware of it, or did you know they did one? I had found out since we watched it, but I didn't know before. Huh. Interesting. And seeing as I'm the scheduler for Downplace, it may show up on the list. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this movie, the original, is probably my favorite version of the film, just because of Lon Chaney. I mean, anything with Lon Chaney is going to be solid anyway, and his performance in this is spot on. I think the reveal is amazing. I think the makeup's amazing. I think his physicality is amazing. I love this movie, especially considering that Lon Chaney and the director did not get along for him to be able to. Yeah, I mean, the rumor is, the word is, is they weren't even talking to each other. Hmm. That they used an intermediary to kind of communicate one of, you know, back and forth. Hey, you, you tell the director, Rupert Julian, I said this. Well, you tell Lon Chaney, I said that, you know? <laughs> wow. That's, that's hard to believe when you see the film that the, the two of them didn't get along. There's no sense that there was a troubled production here at all. So good. Well, mm-hmm. I'm glad you guys saw it. I'm glad you guys dug it. And I really I, am excited that you guys like this movie so much. And I'd like to, uh, to publicly thank the art craft for putting this together. And, oh uh, yeah. You know, giving me a chance to see it for the first time in such an, a, an amazing environment. Yeah, exactly. And we're looking forward to them showing it again next year. And we'll make sure to let Monster Kid Radio listeners know when it's going to be available. You know, we do Monster Kid Radio crashes here in the Portland area because that's where I'm at. But if there's anybody in that part of the world that listens to the show, you guys got to go see a movie like this with a group of fellow Monster Kid Radio listeners or Monster Kids. Join Scott and Tracy for the next showing of Phantom of the Opera or any other monster movies that they happen to be going to the Artcraft to. It's just an amazing theater based on what I've seen and heard. And I'd love to sit in the movie theater with Scott and Tracy to watch a movie. Come on. That sounds fun. Uh, we are going to go see Nightmare Before Christmas in October. No, it's not Monster Kid, but that's uh, probably our next trip there. <laughs> if- right on. Or it might be The Shining. I haven't decided if we're going to go see that or not. Scott and Tracy can be found at... Disney Indiana, DisneyIndiana.com, comes out twice a month, every two weeks. Yep, every other Sunday. What's coming up next for you guys? Anything that you want to share with the listeners? When does this episode go out? Tuesday, the 16th. (laughs) Actually, on the 14th, we are going to be discussing Atlantis, the Lost Empire, and an unmade area of Disneyland that was called Discovery Bay that would have taken elements from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and a film called The Island at the Top of the World. Now, this is the episode of Disney Indiana that will have just come out. Yes. A couple of days ago. So people need to check that out, especially because, well, he mentioned 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We have an upcoming crossover between Monster Kid Radio and Disney Indiana where we're going to talk about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 
I'm excited for that. As are we. <laughs> oh, good. It's your show. <laughs> yes. And I, I can, I can it was your idea. <laughs> and I can share the story of actually seeing this film on a boat. Nice. Definitely looking forward to that. And that'll be happening later this month on Monster Kid Radio and Disney Indiana. Yes. And then, of course, we've mentioned it a couple times. Scott's my co-host. One of the three Hammereros. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the three Hammer... One of the, we do 1951 downplays together <laughs> with Casey Criswell. <laughs> and uh, later this month, uh, the three of us will be talking about the film Man About the House, which was uh, eventually uh, became the basis for Three's company here in the U.S. Scott, Tracy, you guys are awesome. Thank you for doing this. Well, thanks for having us on. Yeah, we really enjoyed having a chance to talk about a new-to-us film. And like I said, we're both looking forward to seeing it again. Part of me wishes sometime I had seen this earlier in my life, but then I would have passed up the fact that this was my first time seeing it in this environment. So, You know, and that's the thing. I, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing the Hammer podcast with you, too, is that I get to experience some of these movies through some new eyes, movies that I've already experienced and have had part of me for so long. And it's, it's just a different approach and a different take, and I love that. So thank you for sharing that with us, man. Well, thanks again, Derek. Again, if you're in the Franklin, Indiana area, check out the Historic Art Craft Theater. Tell them that Monster Kid Radio and Scott and Tracy Morris sent you. Find out more about them at historicartcrafttheater.org. Or again, follow the link in the show notes. Also at the show notes at monsterkidradio.net, there are links to two petitions. So as of right now, Universal Studios is talking about demolishing Stage 28. There's been some talk about saving part of the stage or some of the set, but they want to pretty much make room for other production facilities and or attractions. Stage 28 isn't the oldest standing stage on the Universal lot, but in our opinion here at Monster Kid Radio, it's one of the most important. So there are two positions. One tinyurl.com slash phantom petition. This is one of those petition websites where if they get so many signatures, they'll send it off to whoever. I don't know who's going to see the results of this thing, but go ahead and throw your name on that. Also, tinyurl.com slash stage 28 is a petition to get the U.S. government to name stage 28 a national historic landmark, which means it could not be demolished. So, I think of the two, the National Historic Landmarks, probably the most important. But go ahead and sign them both if you're feeling up to it. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash phantompetition and tinyurl.com slash stage28. I want to make a comment on something that was brought up in the discussion with Scott and Tracy. Scott said he wasn't really aware of the Hammer version of Phantom of the Opera. He is one of my co-hosts at 1951 Down Place, the monthly podcast for our Hammer Film discussion. On that podcast, we have a tradition. Every host, me, Scott, and Casey Criswell, get to pick the movie we cover for our birthday. During our birthday month, I have not announced or decided what movie I wanted to pick for December. We joke a lot about it being Vengeance of Chi, but I think the guys would kill me if I did that. So, I'm going to make the announcement right here, in December. At 1951 Down Place, I am picking as my pick for my birthday month the Hammer Films version of Phantom of the Opera. I think that'll be a lot of fun. You know what else is going to be a lot of fun? What I've got planned for next week's episode 
of Monster Kid Radio. People who know me personally, people who follow me on Facebook, know that I've had a visitor here at the Monster Kid Radio headquarters. My mother came to visit. Now, she doesn't live in the area. She actually lives in a completely different state. She came up to spend some time with me and my wife. It was a lot of fun. Had a really good time with her here. Did a little bit of traveling. And right before she left, I got her to sit down in front of a microphone for Monster Kid Radio. So, next episode of monster kid radio in two days here on mkr you've got me and my mother i'm going to interview her and talk with her a little bit about my growing up my interest in these movies that sort of thing the conversation kind of went to a weird place i didn't expect what came up to come up during the conversation and honestly i haven't even started editing the piece but i am excited to share that conversation with the monster kid radio guys and gals so that'll be coming up here in a couple of days here at monster kid radio again find me on facebook if you want to chat with me or anybody else in the monster kid radio facebook group and i will talk to everybody here in a couple of days until then remember that monster kid radio is a registered service mark of monster kid radio llc all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under a creative commons attribution Non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song, Someday You'll Be My Girl. That belongs to the Low Sweat Guitars, and it appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Check them out at lowsweatguitars.bandcamp.com. Talk to everybody here in a couple of days. (laughs) 